intention for is from the Gospel of John, the first chapter. John chapter 1, and we'll read from 1 through 14. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's respond to the reading we connected with the Church of God throughout the ages, and well, we should, because the Church of God is one church scattered throughout the whole world. One of the ways we express our unity with the universal church is by means of the creeds that we share. And so now we will read together the Apostles' Creed, and then afterward we'll take time to pray to the Lord for his blessing. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us turn. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, I have a, a rather different introduction to this message. Quite a few years ago, when I was your pastor, you may or may not recall that I started a series on the four Gospels concurrently. In other words, going through the four Gospels together. I don't remember how many sermons we got to before I ended up in Arkansas. And then I started that series again, and I got further. 
And I think it was up to 82 sermons or so, and I still didn't finish. Well, now in Burgessville, I'm starting again. But when I did, I recognized something. I started too far ahead. I began, if I recall, with Zacharias and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. But honestly, how can you miss John chapter 1? Because, beloved, the gospel didn't begin here on earth. The gospel didn't begin with the birth of Christ. It didn't begin with John the Baptist. The gospel has always been. It began before time began. The gospel, beloved, lives in the heart of a triune God. In other words, the gospel is God. And God is the gospel. His very heart is a gospel heart. And so, that's how we begin in Burgessville. And that's how I want to end our Lord's Day together tonight. The gospel begins, is our title. It begins with the Father, it begins with the Son, and it begins with the Holy Spirit. And just to get us started, is John chapter 1, verses 1 and 4, but we'll be considering several passages. This is more what we would call a thematic message. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Young people, you undoubtedly know that the Gospel of John was written much later than the other three Gospels. Uh, nearly at the end of John's life. And that gave John, by the inspiration of the Spirit, the advantage of seeing what others had written and kind of filling in the blanks, as it were, explaining things that others didn't, covering events that others didn't, or, or reporting certain gospel histories from a perspective other than the other three did. And isn't it interesting that John begins his gospel with these three words, in the beginning. And for our children, you recognize those words, I'm sure. That's how our Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what John is doing, he takes us back to a time before there was time. He takes us to a place before there was a place, before there was a heaven or an earth, before there was anything except God himself. In the beginning, he says, was the word. Now, if we didn't know our Bibles very well, we would say that's an awfully strange word, of, a strange way of introducing the gospel. In the beginning was the word, but then soon we see John explaining that the word was with God, so whatever this word was, was with God before creation. And then he goes a step further, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So in this one verse, God is referring to the Father. The word is referring to the Son, to the Father's only begotten Son. And John is making something very clear from the very first words of his gospel. Before the heavens and the earth, God the Father and God the Son were and they are 
one God. And as impossible as it is for us with finite minds to to grasp entirely who God is and, and what he truly is, and even if we would study our whole lifetime, the attributes of God, the, the aspects of God that he reveals in his word, there's one thing here, and that is we can see in the Gospels, we can see in the word. To put it this way, he reveals in his word something of his heart, something of who he is and what he is about. The word gospel, of course, means good news, more particularly good news for lost sinners. But the gospel was not an afterthought. The gospel was not something that the Lord invented because of the fall of Adam and Eve. No, we can say with certainty that the gospel was in the eternal mind of God forever. It flows out of his unchangeable and eternal love, out of his heart for his people, for a people that he would give to his son. And so we want to begin. The gospel begins with the father. Now, admittedly, one of the challenges we face, both in the Old and the New Testament, tracing the gospel to God the Father, is, except in several select verses, God the Father is often named simply God in the scriptures. And yet we find enough in the word of God to know of a certainty that the gospel lives in the heart of the Father eternally. Perhaps it was Jesus himself who gave us the most clear-cut example, clear-cut tie between the gospel and his Father. John 16, 27. For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. Now you might wonder, well, wait a minute, how is that a direct connection between the gospel and the Father. Because when you think about this verse over against one of the most famous verses in John's gospel, John three sixteen, for God, that is the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So in other words... To take the two together, the Father sent and gave his only begotten Son to be believed. And Jesus said, whoever does believe in him, whoever loves this Son, is loved by the Father. And just so we're clear, it doesn't mean the first time we believe God will begin to love us. No, it's because God ever loved us that we begin to believe, that we begin to see our need of Christ and the beauty of Christ and are drawn to Christ. And don't we also find in our own lives and lives of our loved ones how the devil loves to twist and to turn 
this truth in a hundred different ways so that we won't believe it. You you can just imagine. Yes, God so loved the world, but he doesn't love you. But doesn't it say here, whosoever believeth? Yes, but is your believing the right kind of believing? Or are you believing of yourself, or is it from God? And a hundred variations of the same. Surely you shouldn't presume that God is working in you, because that's presumption, and what if you deceive yourself, and maybe forever, wouldn't it be safer, says the evil one, just to wait until you know that you're born again, till you know you're a child of God, and then maybe go to Christ in repentance and in faith, and so on and so forth. And the sum total of all those deceptions hath God really said. But what does Jesus say? about his father. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And even perhaps more closely to our hearts, it was Jesus who said, this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And our natural hearts would respond something like, well, but you don't know me. You don't know how much I sin. You don't know how much unbelief fills my life. You don't know my record. You don't know my past. You don't know my present. You don't know how often I succumb to temptation. I feel like I'm at the ends of the earth. I'm so far from God. I've wandered, and so on and so forth. A repeat offender. And what is the father's response? Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. And the Father said to the Son concerning us Gentiles, Isaiah 49, 6, I will also give thee, my Son, for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation, where? Unto the end of the earth. You can't have drifted too far. You can't have backslidden too far. You can't have sinned too much to get out of the reach of this God who saves to the uttermost all who come unto him by Jesus. And if you want to know how deep the Father's love for sinners in the gospel is, it pleased the Father to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. He made his soul an offering for sin. That deep. Deep enough that his own son became an offering for sin. And then we see so many similar statements. We have seen, writes John, near the end of his writings, we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Is there any doubt, in light of these and so many similar statements, what lies in the heart of the Father? Never mind what lies in your heart, what lies in my heart. We know enough of that. It's bad from start to finish by nature. 
But that's not the gospel. It's not how good we are and how good we present ourselves to him. It's how good he is and what his intentions are according to his own word. And if he would give his only begotten son, if he would offer for sin his only well-beloved son, will he not give everything else we need? Everything else we need. And he promises that. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So maybe you are sitting here and I don't know your present situation, but there could be people here that have been kind of at a standstill spiritually, maybe for a long time. Not sure what to make of all this. Having been taught and told perhaps for years that you cannot come, you dare not come, you may not come, unless you experience something, know something, have something before you come, because then you'll be coming the right way and and so on. But how did Jesus begin his ministry? What was his first sermon. Repent and believe the gospel. What does that mean? Turn from your ways of thinking. Turn from your ways of living. This is not something we reason out. This is not something that stands and falls because of our logic. Change your mind as well as your heart And stop your ears to those who teach for doctrines the commandments of men. Because God does not require, beloved, a certain depth of conviction or a certain duration of conviction. The fact is, only sinners ever come to Jesus for mercy, truly. Jesus himself said it, those that are whole, those that think themselves to have it all together, They don't need a doctor. Children, you don't go to the doctor just because you stub your toe. It's when you really have a need you want to go. When you you need help from a physician. When you have aches and pains and diseases. Well, are you weary? Beloved, are you weary of yourself now? Are you tired of your sins Have you discovered that try as you might, you can't deliver yourself no matter what, that self-reformations don't last? They don't reach the depth of our problem, our sin. Are you convinced that you need to turn, not initially only, but constantly from our wicked ways to God? And yet we need from him the ability to do it too. And that brings us to him. Because Isaiah tells us how sick we are. We're we're all more sick than we even realize. Isaiah says, why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. Another place in scripture, we are full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. God is saying, I know all about you. I've described what you are, what I am. But what does the Father say to such desperately sick sinners? Come now and let us reason together. 
Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They'll be red like crimson. They shall be as wool. In other words, if you read that whole chapter, Isaiah 1, he rips Israel's religion to shreds. He says, enough of your offerings, enough of your piety, enough of your pretend worship, enough of it. I loathe it. I will not have it all way. And then the father says, now let's get to the point. Though you are as I have described you, I can make you altogether other. Though your sins be as red as blood, I can make them as white as snow. And dear friends, who but the Father made sure that the Holy Spirit filled the pages of Scripture with revelations of his Son? He is the most revealed person in all of the Bible. His well-beloved Son, he longs, the Father does. He loves, the Father does. And it's why he said at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, Hear ye him. And why, did you ever ask a simple question, why would God the Father so reveal his Son? Why would God the Father have his Apostle John tell us that all of these things were written, his gospel was written, and I quote, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye may have life through his name. That isn't John telling you that. That is a father telling us that about his son. He's saying to John, make sure you end your gospel by telling the people that the reason this is written is that you might know who my son is, that you might believe in who my son is, that you might have everlasting life through who my son is. And my question is, will you turn away from the voice of the father concerning his beloved son? Will you instead retreat to your own understanding, to your own ways of thinking, to your ifs and your buts and your maybes and your this and your that, but if you persist, then your damnation will be just. Because you are not the world. You are the church of God. And he has shown you who his son is. And he has shown you how you may approach unto him through the son. He has shown us all that is in the son for good, for nothing, unable sinners like we are. He has made the way open. And if you're still not persuaded that the gospel originated in the heart of the father, in that pinnacle moment in the Old Testament, when Moses, we would say, got everything he asked from the Father and then pressed closer to God, show me thy glory. What did the Father show him? He revealed himself in these very words, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
And if that isn't enough, he adds, and will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, if you are not persuaded by my own revelation of my own character, that I am willing, when you hear those words, uh, iniquity, transgression, sin, it's the, it's the whole gamut of Old Testament wording for every conceivable kind of sin you could ever commit. I am willing to forgive it all. And if you don't believe I am who I say I am, I will not clear your guilt. You will die in your sins. The gospel is good news, but it's also serious news. It's news not to be neglected. It's news not to be dissuaded from. And so we can trace the gospel to the very heart of the Father, but we can also trace the gospel to the very heart of his Son. That's our second thought. I think we know well enough that salvation can only come to us through faith in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture couldn't be plainer. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And when you think about, you know, the the so-called gallery of faith in the New Testament, Hebrews 11, by faith Esau, uh, uh, rather uh, Enoch, by faith Moses, by faith Jacob, by faith Joseph, by faith all of them, Sarah, all of them, by faith, by faith, by faith, they did what they did, they lived how they lived. But then, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, that is the means. The Son of God did not come merely out of duty, The Lord Jesus didn't come into this world out of a sense only of obligation, out of deference to his Father. We know that the Father said, I so love the world that I gave my Son, but children, was the Son willing to come? Did the Son have to come? Did he sort of cringe when he came into the world knowing what he had to do? Well, we need to remind ourselves that the eternal Son of God, what he was before there was a world, before there was a fall. And we get a glimpse of that in the scriptures. For example, in John 17, when Jesus was praying to his Father, O Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. In other words, Jesus is referring to the to the immeasurable glory that he had with his father before creation. And then he refers to that same glory after he came back into heaven after his ascension. In the same prayer, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, because thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus is describing the glory and the love that there is within the Trinity forever. How the three persons are one and have immeasurable love to another. In John 1, the same chapter we just read, verse 18, the Son is described as being in the bosom of the Father. 
We would say today, children, that Jesus was nearest to the Father's heart. He enjoyed such close fellowship with his Father, it's indescribable. Proverbs 8 talks about the Father possessing the Son from the beginning of his way. And what a joy they shared. Co-equal, co-eternal. Then, says the Son, I was by him. I was daily his delight. They created a universe together, Colossians 1.16. And the Son is described in Hebrews 1 as the very image of his Father, the brightness of the Father's glory. And yet, as to the question whether this eternally glorious and majestic God, one so unfathomably close and one with his Father, was willing to be the Lamb of God in that same chapter, describing this glory, describing the joy they shared eternally. We read this, rejoicing in the habitable parts of his earth, And the son says, and my delights were with the sons of men. Think about that. Writing about his eternal joy and existence with the father before there was a creation. You can see that even from the depths of eternity past, lying in the heart and in the mind of the son, my delight my rejoicing was in those parts of the earth that are inhabited by man. My delights were with the sons of men. So this Savior who lacked nothing, this Son who had everything, his joy and his delight was with the sons of men. And what sons of men? Unfallen, sinless, perfect sons of men? There were but two. And that lasted only, what, a day or two or maybe a week? The sons of men are people just like us. Put it together, the heart of God the Son, the mind of God the Son, from all eternity past was focused on sinners. And not just with repugnance, but rejoiced in them, anticipating what would become of them under his care. Another evidence of the son's love, Psalm 40, repeated again in in, uh, Hebrews 10. Then said I, the son says, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. If anybody disputes, that Jesus is the most revealed person in Scripture. He says it himself. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. And then what does he say? I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And turning again to Jesus' prayer in John 17, that they all may be one In what way, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. And as if that isn't glorious enough, he goes on to pray 
and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And as if that wasn't enough, and the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them. The Son is saying, Father, the love that you have to me, I want to be in them. That is truly amazing. How overwhelmingly generous, how incredibly selfless, how amazingly kind the Son is toward lost sinners. This is far from being a duty of His, fulfilling an obligation laid on Him. Do you see the love that He has for those He saves? That same love, he says, that I enjoy with my Father. I want them to know it. Even the glory of we who who have utterly disgraced ourselves through our fall and ongoing sin, even so, cover them, Father, with a glory thou hast given me. And he continues to pray. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He didn't just come, do salvation, suffer, obey, and leave, and say, now you're on your own. No, he continues, Father, this one and that one, I pray for them, save them, keep them, bring them home. Which means, child of God, he follows you. His eye is ever upon you. He knows all what's going on in your life and in your heart. He never ceases to care for you. He never ceases to pray for you. He never ends his benefits to you, even in your darkest moments, even in your deepest falls, even when your unfaithfulness grieves you and grieves him. Can you doubt the son's love when he plainly says to those who by his grace turn to him in repentance and faith. Father, as thou hast loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father hath loved me, so has I loved you. Is it any wonder that when the Spirit of God put the book of Revelation in the heart of John, and when John began that book with, we would say, exaltation, he writes, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Can we we question the gospel heart of Jesus when he says to poor 
needy sinners who cast themselves upon him. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy would be full. That's his will. That my joy might remain in you and that your joy would be full. Again, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And, and even if you're sitting here and, and you can't even count yourself as one of his sheep, consider this. In due time, the scripture says, Christ died for the ungodly. And this, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul writes of Jesus' love this way, Christ hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. So the obvious question I have for you, do you want to know that you are loved by this God? Do you want to know if you are loved by this Father, by this Son? Well, then in the third place, we want to consider our last thought. The gospel begins with the Holy Spirit. As you well know, the Holy Spirit is that divine person in the Trinity who loves by his own admission to give glory to the Father and the Son. I say with reverence, the Holy Spirit tends to keep himself, as it were, in the background. Now, we certainly read about him throughout the scriptures, his work in salvation, absolutely indispensable. We could not be saved without the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And yet, as one studies what the Holy Spirit does, as one looks in the Word at the mind of the Spirit, you will, say, you will see what I mean when I say he prefers to keep himself in the background while he sets the Father and particularly the Son in the foreground. How do we know that the gospel begins in the heart of the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, consider his role in creation. Already at the very beginning, the second verse of the scriptures, before God had formed oceans and land masses and creatures and, and all the distinct aspects of creation we have today, we read the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, the Hebrew word translated moved is pretty difficult to pin down exactly. The Spirit was not only there, but was, as it were, hovering over this as yet incomplete creation. But there's also in this word the sense of overseeing and keeping, kind of like a mother bird over her brood of chicks. Now, why is the Spirit doing that? Did you ever wonder 
Why is that there? What does it have to do with anything? Because the Holy Spirit of all of all beings knew that this would be the place, this world would be the scene where so many of the Father and the Son's blessed attributes would be revealed, would be on display, not just in the creation itself, but in in the work of salvation that would take place here. In Genesis 6, we see the Spirit of God striving with sinners. And it's interesting because the word striving there, it says the spirit will not always strive with man. The sense there is the spirit is going to withdraw himself. In other words, the spirit's restraint on people's wickedness would be somewhat lifted, allowing desperate sinners to do their absolute worst to each other and to God. We use that expression today even, how God leaves someone over to themselves. That's the idea. The conscience no longer restraining, the conscience no longer warning. And yet, what did God do? God spared Noah and his family, allowing, as it were, the human race to begin again, as it were, but now a difference. Because on the other side of the flood, you have this covenant promise, this revelation that for the sake of the Lamb, I will no longer destroy the earth as I once did. So yes, indeed, through the flood, God revealed his just judgments against sin, and they're still revealed today. And yet he also showed astounding mercy toward sinners, toward his people, even in the worst of times. And then what did the Spirit do from then till the end of Scripture? In ever-increasing clarity, with greater and greater detail, over time, like a master artist completing a portrait So the Spirit of God revealed feature after feature of the Son of God, the coming Savior. And it is this same Spirit who not only gave us this incredibly detailed revelation of the Son, but it's the Holy Spirit who, as it were, turns the lights on in the mind of man, in the understanding of the man so that not only do we have the word of God, but he takes our darkened understanding and we begin to see the spiritual realities that are all around us. And it is the same spirit of God who now stirs up in us these these newly beginning desires so that we not only see spiritual realities, but we begin to value these spiritual realities and our will now renewed desires to seek after him. And so it is the Spirit of God who gives us the word, the Spirit of God who opens the mind of man to spiritual realities, who shows man the value of those things and so renews our affections and then energizes the will of man to pursue these things. So you can know 
the spirit of God's work in you by those three things. Do you see spiritual reality for what it is? The reality about us as sinners, the reality about him as a just judge, but as a merciful savior. And as you begin to be shown these things, do you begin to value them now as you didn't before? And the valuing of the sin and of the world and of our distractions and entertainments begins to dim in comparison to the growing value that we see in the things of God. And what do we do with what we value? We begin to pursue it. That's the will being renewed. That's all on account of the Holy Spirit. It is He who does this new birth in us, taking the very faculties which we have ruined in the fall and by our ongoing sin, and he transforms them. And Jesus made it plain that the Holy Spirit does all this in John chapter 3. It's written in, in beautiful terms in the canons of Dort, and I recommend them to you. The canons talk about opening the closed and softening the hardened heart and infusing new qualities into the will, which heretofore was dead and now he makes alive. And it concludes by saying, whereupon the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence, itself becomes active. Wherefore also man is himself rightly said to believe and repent by virtue of that grace. So do you know that? I'm not asking if you know a day or a time or even a season when you were born again, but can you identify with an understanding that sees the world and yourself and the things of God differently than before, whether that came suddenly or gradually is of no moment, and whether seeing these things you have begun irresistibly to value them, maybe not as consistently as we should or as deeply as we should, but the things of this world are decreasing in your eyes and the things of God are more prominent in your eyes. And what do we do in response to what we value? We pursue it. So do you know that? Because that is the Holy Spirit. And let the word of God be your guide. Not what grandpa said or some minister somewhere said and don't take my word for it either. Is not this the teaching of scripture? Did not our forefathers, as it were, nail it from the pages of scripture? This is how he works. These are the marks that are set forth in the word of God. I used to marvel when I first came to the Reformed faith. We say we believe in total depravity, but we give the natural man a lot of credit. As if we can believe, but it's not really believing. As if we can repent, but it might be of ourselves. These things are alien to the natural man. 
We're not interested in believing. We're not interested in repenting. We've been taught it. We have heard it. But when push comes to shove, our hearts are in our sins. Our hearts are in the world. Our hearts value the things of man by nature. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit loves to take, as Jesus himself says, it's his greatest delight, the Spirit's greatest delight, to take the things of Christ and to show them unto you. That is his joy. John 15, 26, Jesus said, The Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me, the Son. And in John 16, 14, he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. So are you looking for deliverance, from, for freedom from yourself, from your sins, from our flesh? Are we tired and weary of carnal influences going on in ourselves? The, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, says, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And where does the Holy Spirit do that work? John fourteen seventeen. He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Which is why the Apostle Paul elsewhere calls the believer the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is good news. But it's much older news than we might have suspected. It has ever been there. It is an unchanging God, an eternal God, a perfectly holy God, loving, sinful man, and providing the only just way of doing so. It cannot be, beloved, that God would love you only after Jesus died on the cross. That simply cannot be. Because who are we without Jesus? How could he love any sinner apart from the sacrifice? But the answer to that dilemma is what John wrote in Revelation. He is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world which means it never wasn't in the heart of God to save. It never wasn't in the mind of God to love you who are loved by him. Which is why those words of the Apostle John are so beautiful. So simple. We have known and believed the love that God has toward us. Can you say that? Can you say that? 
Where are you this afternoon, dear friend? Have you known something of this gospel awakening? Are, are you experiencing it now? Maybe for the first time. Awaken to your need. Awaken to the danger you are in. Awaken to the absolute inability to fix yourself or save yourself. Unable to lastingly change yourself. Do you know something of that cry, what, Lord, must I do to be saved? Or the blind man, who is he, Lord, that I might believe? Or the father from this morning's message, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And has Jesus become precious to you? The apostle Peter says, unto you who believe, he is precious. And children of God who already are wrought upon by the Holy Spirit, look back, look way back to see that you were never for a moment absent from God's mind, that you were never for an instant not an object of God's love. Even when you were lost in sin, when you were steeped in darkness, when you were heading in the wrong way, his eye was upon you, even when your eye was nowhere near looking for him. And must you not testify that every step of the way since he has shown you undeserved love and mercy? his faithfulness, even when we were least deserving of it. And is it not fair for him to say to us, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and run with patience, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame that is now set down at the right hand of God. And to those of you who have been long on the way, who are not ignorant of Satan's devices, I know if I ask you what your state is, as one of our dear brothers in Christ in Burgessville would inevitably say, how am I? Redeemed. But my question to you is not what your state is, because as a child of God, I know that. What is your condition? You can be in the state of marriage, but the condition of your marriage may not be what it should be. You may be in the state of grace, but how is your relationship with the Lord? Well, the gospel says... Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and put off the old man in his deeds because there's plenty of grace when our condition doesn't match our state. There's a way for that to be remedied in Christ Jesus. Pursue greater and deeper intimacy. First with your beloved, the Lord Jesus, and that will go a long way to repairing your relationships with other people. So let us pray together that the gospel is not just a passing thought, 
that the gospel isn't just something we read in a few books of the Bible, that the gospel is something so central to who God is that every time we bow our knees, every time we utter a prayer, we are convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are praying to the only living God whose very heart, whose very mind is the sum and substance of the gospel of salvation. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we are the blind man We are the leper. We are the dead son. We are the woman caught in adultery. We are Mary Magdalene in whom was seven devils. We are the hypocrite. We are described in dark colors in the gospel. And what do we find, Lord? In every case, when a broken down, helpless, impossible to cure person approached thee, they were cured. They were healed. They were saved. And Lord, we cannot believe on the basis of thy own word that thou hast changed for I, the Lord, change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And so incline every heart for the first time or the thousandth time to come to thee with expectation, not in ourselves, but in thee, to not forsake our profession, but to come boldly, not to a throne of judgment, but to a throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.